2 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul continues to write here saying, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again, of course meaning back to you in heaviness. Uh, you recall that in the first letter he wrote, uh, there were some things he had to deal with, uh, things that were going on in the church, and uh, probably didn't uh, make some people feel very good, of course. And he doesn't want to come back again with uh, that to deal with. Verse 2, he says, For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? So, you know, if, if you all are in heaviness with sorrow, how, am, how is that, who's going to make me glad? So um, he doesn't want to come that way. Verse 3. Paul says, and I wrote this same to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice. Uh, you remember in particular, there was an issue with uh, a man in the church where incest was being committed. And not that, of course, that was bad, but in addition to that, none of the church people seemed to mind. It was like no big deal. And so it was a, should be a big deal. And so... I think he's specifically making reference to this. So he doesn't want to come back and find that this person hasn't turned away from this. And so then he says, from them of whom I ought to rejoice, he should be happy that they have um, gotten back in the will of God. Going on to verse 3, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So um, he wants to come and that be taken care of, and that there be rejoicing and not sorrow. Verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, referring, of course, to 1 Corinthians. Not that you would, should be grieved. That wasn't his intention to make them upset. But that you might know the love which I have more abundantly to you. You know, you think about in the book of Hebrews where God says, you know, we're, we're his, and so if we're his, he chastises us. He wants to teach us what is right, discipline us. And if parents love their children, which I say if, knowing that most parents do, unless there's something wrong in their head, uh, but parents love their children, and so the children growing up might not always think that's the case, when they're told, you know, you can't do that, and they probably think, well, you know, why can't they do that? It, well, nothing bad will go, nothing bad will happen. But it's because the parents love their children. And in some cases, it may be that they, growing up, experienced it themselves and don't want that to happen for their children. So, it's out of love. And Paul says that here. It is, his initial intention wasn't to make them sorrowful, but he wanted to show them how much he loved them. Verse 5, but, he says, if any have caused grief, he's not grieved me, but in part. So he said, yeah, there's a little bit of grief, but only in part. He says that I may not overcharge you all. So he didn't want to blow this out of proportion. And what he means by that, he explains. In verse 6, sufficient to such a man is this punishment what, which was inflicted of many. In other words, all right, this person was doing the wrong thing, and the church was supposed to get this corrected. And so this was the punishment that he received. 
Verse 7, he says, so that contrariwise, we ought rather to forgive him. So once a person has turned away from whatever it was they were doing, in this case incest, he said we should forgive him. That would, that would be the purpose. It says, and comfort him. That's encourage him. So when there are believers who have gone the wrong direction, it doesn't mean that we shun them and have nothing to do with them anymore. We want them once they repent. We want to forgive them and encourage them. And this is why he says, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. A person could be just so distraught that as a believer they just give up. They just give up in their life. Verse 80 says, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Make sure he knows that you love him. Verse 9, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. He wanted to make sure the church was going to listen to the teachings of God. Verse 10, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. All about forgiveness. And verse 11 says why. Why we need to forgive in this case. It says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. So if a person, you know, says, well, I refuse to forgive them. and I'm going to show any love towards them. And they won't let that go then Satan can get a foothold in that Christian's life. He can take advantage. It says at the end of verse 11, Paul says, for, meaning because we as believers are not ignorant of his, that's Satan's, devices. Or at least we should know what, what he's trying to do. He's, he, his purpose, we're already saved, so that's, he can't, do anything about that. But if he can keep us as Christians from doing what God wants us to do, then he will be successful. And so he's working constantly and to try to get us in any case he can, to take advantage of us. So he said we need to forgive. Now, it doesn't mean that you, um, that if the person refuses to stop doing whatever it is they're doing, um, it doesn't mean you just go ahead and fellowship with them like everything's okay. That's what they were doing to start with. They were having fellowship with this individual as though it was okay, and it wasn't okay. And so that doesn't mean that. But once the person has repented, and they realize it was wrong, and they are back in the will of God, that's where we need to make sure that person is forgiven. Verse 12, now he mentions something here in two verses about his, a little bit about his travel, which won't come back again until chapter 7, so we've got a lot more where he mentions this again. But here he says, furthermore, when I came to Troas, now Troas is a city, um, would be in, was in northwest Asia Minor, which we would call Turkey today. So he says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me of the Lord. So he found an opportunity there. Verse 13. Paul said, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. 
But taking my leave of them, I went from there to Macedonia. So again, this is mentioned later when we get to chapter 7. He says in verse 14, Now, thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Let's talk about this word savor. It's an old English word. Some of you have modern translations, so you, you might have fragrance or odor or smell or something like that. But um, the way I look at it is, you know, we, have, we still use the word flavor. So when it has to do with taste, we use flavor. In the old English, when they talked about smell, they used savor. So savor and flavor, right? So this has to do with fragrances, how things smell. And he's using this analogy. It's not the only place in the Bible we see this analogy. Um, you know, in the sense that the burnt offerings in the Old Testament they would bring were a sweet savor, sweet-smelling to God. So here we, and that's, of course, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, uh, somebody's cooking something and you smell um, like a, a ham roasting in the oven and you just smell that, it makes you really hungry. But the point is, it, it represents something that's pleasing so this savor or fragrance of God's knowledge. Verse 15, he says, For we are to God a sweet savor, so a pleasant fragrance of Christ. Now he says, In them that are saved, literally in the Greek, in those that are being saved and those that are, being, uh, that are perishing. And then it, it differentiates the two. In verse 16, he starts with the ones that are perishing. To the one, that's those who are perishing, we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other, the savor or fragrance of life unto life. So, death unto death, life unto life. Now certainly we could talk about those who are lost, but also think about uh, believers um, who are not interested anymore in the Word of God. And we know there's, um, since we know there's spiritual death and there's physical death, but there's also solical death. And then we have life, uh, not just physical life and our spiritual life that we have, but there's solical life to always keep in mind. And then he asks this question at the end of verse 16, and who is sufficient for these things? So he's asking, who is qualified? Who's adequate for this ministry? And the reason he brings that up in verse 17, he says, for we are not as many. And there were a lot of other people in the first century doing what he's about to say. Who corrupt the word of God. Now, when I first read that, I thought that meant, you know, taking the word of God and uh, teaching things out of context and misinterpreting and all of that. But it literally has to do with people trying to make money off the word of God using it for profit. And he said, Paul said that isn't what they were doing, Paul and Timothy and those with him. They weren't doing that. But they, these others, many were corrupting the word of God. He says, but for, Paul says, but as of sincerity. So we know that Paul was sincere in his teaching. He says, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Now we have time, so we'll go on to chapter 3. Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Um, this, he's mentioning this because there were people in that day that uh, went on and on about how qualified they are and how special they were and what all they could do and blah, 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 and so forth. 
He says, do we have to do that? He said, or need we? Is it necessary? As some others. Epistles, that's the old English word for letters, letters of commendation to you or letters of commendations from you. You know, do we have to do, we have to do that? Many were doing that. He said, do we have to do that? Verse 2, and this is what he says, ye, which is old English, of course, we, we use you whether it's singular or plural. That's why it's always you are, even if it's singular, right? But in the old English, ye was you plural. He's saying these believers in Corinth, you are our epistle written in our hearts. Though the Corinthian believers, he said, you are our letter, and it's written in our hearts. It says, known and read of all men. Think about how, you know, we're believers here, and there are believers all over different places in the world. But if we're letting Christ live through us, that as we go through this life, others should see Christ in us. If they don't, there's something wrong. Um, doesn't mean we're lost. If we're a believer, we're saved, but it means we're probably living a carnal life. So as we go about our lives, whether it's talking to someone and the modern ways we can do it uh, on the Internet, different ways, or talking uh, literally talking to somebody on the phone or FaceTiming or actually seeing them or coming in contact. And I know it still happens because it says shelter in place, but I can't tell any difference when I'm driving to work. There's like, are all these businesses essential? I don't know. But anyway, and uh, every time I've gone to get groceries, the parking lot at Sam's is full and the line is, they can only let 300 in at a time and the line goes all the way across the front of Sam's if you know how big it is. And around, so I know people are coming in contact with other people. In any case, he says, he says to them, "You are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read of all men." Verse three: For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, and where they were the ones that came and told them about the Lord, they they got saved. It says, "Ministered by us, written not with ink." but with the Spirit of the living God. And he's starting in to start to contrast again as he, as he does in other of his epistles between the law and grace. Because he says, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly ta tables of the heart. Verse 4, And such trust have we through Christ, to God word, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think, to think anything of ourselves. Paul said, that's not what you know, when he says, do we need to commend ourselves again in verse 1, he clarifies that it's not because we can do this on our own. We're not sufficient ourselves. We should all realize that as believers. We can't do it on our own. Or to think, he says, uh, to think anything as of ourselves. But, he says, our sufficiency is of God, and that's what we should say as well. We are sufficient in Him, not by ourselves. I know all of you know that, but it's, it's something to be reminded of. It's, it's His power, not ours. Verse 6, Who, speaking of God, also has made us able ministers of the New Testament. As Paul is contrasting here the New Testament to the Old Testament. And the word testament can also be a covenant or contract 
or will. You know, when you think about um, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about that the, the will doesn't go in an effect until the person who wrote the will dies, right? That's why Christ is the testator. He had to die for the testament to go into effect, or the will. So he's saying we're ministers of the new testament, and he said God has made us such. So he doesn't need all those letters of commendation. God has made us ministers of the New Testament. He said, not of letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's talking about the letter in the sense of the law couldn't save. But the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, but if the ministration of death, he's talking about the law, written and engraven in stones was glorious, that had its purpose, right? We, We use the theological word dispensation. It was a period of time. You know, a lot of people have questioned, say, well, I mean, you can do this about a lot of stuff. Like, if God knew Lucifer was going to fall, why did he create Lucifer? If God knew Adam was going to fall, why did he create Adam like that? Why did he need to make everything, you know, people ask all, all kind of questions about it. But somebody might say about the law, well, he could have skipped the whole thing since it didn't save anybody. Why did we go through the Old Testament? Why, do we, why did, was there the law? But the scriptures say it was a schoolmaster, a school teacher. It was to teach us. Somebody can't come along later and say, well, if you'd have given me the chance, I could have done it. I could have kept the law. Nobody can say that. Each period of time, God is doing some testing, if you will. So in verse 7, so the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. His face shone so bright. Remember when Moses has his experience with God. And his face was shining, and they could look at his face. It says, which glory was to be done away. That's, of course, the Old Testament, the law. Verse 8. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? In other words, how much more? If, if we say the law was glorious and it couldn't save, then how much more the Spirit? Verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, talking about the law, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. It's so much more. Verse 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excels. In other words, you compared the two. There's no, in a sense, no comparison. Verse 11. For if that which is done away, that was the law, was glorious, how, then it says, much more that which remains is glorious. So that's, now we're in the dispensation of grace. Verse 12. Seeing then, Paul says, that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now, we know that a lot of people misinterpret what hope is, but hope isn't that we hope to get to heaven, but we hope that we will not have forfeited our inheritance. You know, the whole book of Hebrews, so a big chunk of it is to remind us not to harden our hearts like the children of Israel did in the day of provocation when they were in the wilderness and they, they tempted God and they tried God and they complained about everything. And if we do the same thing, then we won't get 
what was promised to them and what is promised to us as the inheritance to rule and reign with Christ. And we can't have that if we harden our hearts like they did. So he goes on and says in verse 13, and not as Moses, not like Moses, which put a veil over his face, right? They couldn't look at it, so he had to put a veil over it. That the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Again, the law has been done away with. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded. Now, Paul talks a lot about this. Remember, he says in Romans that blindness in part has happened unto them until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So right now, Israel's still blinded. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. They don't see Christ as the Messiah. The word Christ, Christos, means king. They don't see him as the Messiah. They didn't believe he was. They still don't believe. I mean, they're individual Jews that have believed, and now they're part of the church. But I'm talking about people who have the Jewish religion, the, the nation of Israel, they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And so that veil is still there. So when they read the Old Testament, they don't see anything about Christ. They read Isaiah 53. It talks about his crucifixion. They don't see that there. All the types that everything points to Christ, they don't see any of that. It's because they're blinded. They're still blinded. And of course in Romans he said, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in then that blindness will be lifted. Verse 15. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. It's still there. Verse 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the it referring to the nation of Israel, the veil will be taken away. Verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit. So contrasting, remember he kept using the word spirit as opposed to the letter. The Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the word liberty means freedom, and he's, he's, he's contrasting that, our grace that we have, our freedom in Christ as opposed to the law. Now, I just want to briefly interject, as all of you have known, studying other scriptures, it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it doesn't mean without any law. It doesn't mean there aren't rules. It doesn't mean that, because, but it says the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9. So yes, we're not under the law. We have this freedom. But still, as, as Jesus summed it all up, first, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, and then he also mentioned the loving your neighbor as yourself. And of course, if you love, love those around you, you won't kill them or steal from them or covet what they have and so forth. Go to court and bear false witness against them. But so we have this freedom in Christ. Verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. So open face, not a veil over. We're, we, we don't have the veil. But we're looking, it's like we're looking at a mirror as the glass was used then, piece of glass. So with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, that is the image of the Lord, the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's how we keep changing more from glory to glory. 
All right, we have time. We can go on to chapter 4. He says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as Paul had the ministry, he says, As we have received mercy, we faint not. So God is merciful, and he said we don't give up, we don't quit. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. And that's what we should all be doing, renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. Um, you know, I think of that word often when I think of uh, the scripture in Genesis that talks about Satan, the serpent, or it's more subtle than any creature God had created, the craftiness, the deceitfulness of Satan. So we shouldn't walk that way as believers nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what they were doing. That's how we should do it. Verse 3. He says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world, literally the word world, you know, there's the cosmos and there's Ionian, and this is the word age. Notice it's spelt with a little g. Speaking of Satan, um, you know, there's lots of types. I forget who it was that recently was mentioning them, if it was Jimmy Perry or Jeff or whoever was preaching. But in the Old Testament, there's lots of types, and there's, I know Jerry taught about it recently in Sunday school. But Christ has the authority to rule now as king, but he won't do that until Satan is removed and cast into the bottomless pit, which will be at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Then Christ will rule. So in the type of the Old Testament, David had the authority to be king, but he did not rule until Saul was out of the picture. And Saul, in that sense, is a type of Satan. So, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious excuse me, gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. You know, when you look at the parable of the sower, and you see the different seeds that are sown, and you can think of it in the, um, you know, the, the word of the kingdom, as it's mentioned in um, Matthew, and each, one, uh, each gospel listed a little bit differently. But thinking of it in the sense of those coming to know Christ... Satan works first to make sure they don't get the message, that they don't believe it, that they're blinded. Verse 5, he said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. That's all of us as believers to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So all of that ties into when he was talking about the, the, the glory that, and the, that shone off of Moses' face from seeing God and the veil that he wore. And here we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Right? It's, it should be his. It's his power. You know, you talk about the earthen vessels. The... Verse 8. We are troubled on every side. And this, Paul starts to talk about some of the things that were, was happening to them. Yet not distressed. So 
despite all the troubles, not distressed. I think that's sort of what Ken was hinting at earlier, or maybe not hinting, but literally saying. Despite all that's going around us, the pandemic, the tornadoes, all of these things, it's certainly troubles, troubles on every side. But Paul said, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Literally, the word perplexed has to do with going without things. But despair would mean just giving up. There's no hope. Just Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. Now, I think they had a lot more persecution in the first century and some years to follow through the church age. Not as much, you know, we're not uh, taken like Nero did because we're believers and put up along the streets to light on fire to be lights for the Romans during the night. Uh, we're not, uh, as they called it, the circus. The Colosseum still stands today. They would raise up the gate and push the Christians in, making sure the lions hadn't had any food for a while. Uh, that's a little more persecution that we might go through. I think the most persecution may, we might have, uh, and some of you may have experienced this, like, um, you go to what church? What? You believe what? I think that's about the extent of our persecution. And it, it really, it's never bothered me. I, I just, you know, those people can say all they want to. I just know uh, that, just, you know, know that they won't see it unless God permit. But let's go on in, in verse 9. Persecuted but not forsaken. God hasn't left us. He's still there. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Cast down, but not destroyed. I don't know, you know, how far down any of you personally have been. But Paul said, not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So he says, bearing, carrying about the body, the dying in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. You know, you think about the scriptures where Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up my cross. So there's things that he said specifically. And so we think of that and to, to mortify the deeds of the flesh that Paul said to the Romans. This dying of the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. So I don't think we have it to the extent he did. Verse 12. So then death works in us, but life in you. So that's what Paul went through, but it was all for their benefit. Verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. So thinking about that, the resurrection. He said, we believe, you believe that he'll raise us up. Now, of course, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. So it was something that was real. We shall not all sleep. So some of us won't have to be raised up if we're alive at the rapture. We'll just get our new bodies. 
But here is what he wanted to do, this, this being presented. It says, and shall present us with you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. It was all for his glory. For which cause we faint not. Paul says we don't give up, and we shouldn't give up today. You know, I almost think it's contradicting in a sense that, you know, we're supposed to shelter in place, and I understand the, the risks and so forth. But I'm not sure that, and I'm not talking about our congregation, um, but I'm talking about a lot of people who, very few of them who still go to church, that they aren't sort of glad to stay home and not go to church. Now, I know that's not everybody, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but it's something to pray about. We have the technology, most of us have it. Um, I think there may be one in our church that doesn't that uh, the services could be listened to at home. I talked to my father yesterday. He and my stepmother don't have any computer or iPhone, or they just have a regular phone. <laughs> they don't have any of that, so even though their services are broadcast like we, ours are, they can't listen to them. My father said, I miss church. So, um, you know, pray for those who aren't able to still get it. But here we see... In verse 16, not giving up, not quitting. He says, but through our outward man, or excuse me, but though our outward man perish, our physical bodies are dying, yet the inward man re is renewed day by day. If we stay in the word, we can get our strength renewed. Verse 17, for our light affliction, he's comparing what we go through now for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You know, it's hard for us to imagine when we're going through something, those that have been impacted by the tornadoes and those that are hospitalized and all of that. It's because it's we're in the moment, but when we look back on it, it's going to be like, oh, well, that was, that was not very long. In comparison, it's light in comparison. It's just a moment in comparison. He said, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know, Paul said when he wrote to the Romans that the sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. So we know that specifically he's trying to compare it. Yeah, it could be hard. In the moment it feels like it's forever, but it's really not. And it doesn't compare and we'll close with verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Why does he say to do that? Verse, uh, the word for means because. Because the things which are seen are temporal. We use the word temporary not in modern English. They're not going to last. The things that, that we see, that we look at, but what's going to last? It says, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what things do we count as important? Yes, we're grateful for a place to live and food to eat and, and, and clothes to wear and all the things that God blesses us with. But our focus should not be 
on the thing on the things because they're going to have an end. But it should be our focus on the things that we can't see, the spiritual, looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ and hoping that we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments in your word this morning. We pray that you would... Um, we thank you that you've allowed us to be reminded of these things and focusing on not the things we see, but focus on that which will be forever, the eternal, the spiritual. We pray your will in each of our lives, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.